Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. People who are really into identity politics sometimes get flustered at the idea that food is the great leveler. Food is the thing that has been passed back and forth across the world for millennia. And there's no such thing as uncontaminated, pure cultural phenomenon called food. It's why it's so fascinating to write about. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, Matt talks to Robert Sietzema, a senior restaurant critic at Eater New York and a longtime chronicler of eating out in New York City. Also on the show, Smitten Kitchen's Deb Perlman answers a reader question. But Matt, what was it like talking to Robert, someone who's probably eaten out at like hundreds of restaurants in New York at this point? By Robert Sietzema's count, there are over 140 ethnicities operating restaurants in New York City. And by my account, as a loyal reader of his in The Village Voice and now at Eater, he's documented nearly all 140 of them. Robert and I have a great conversation about his career as a food critic and writer. And he actually has a bone to pick with the current crop of food writers and critics. Uh Uh-oh. Am I one of them? What's his bone to pick? He was not targeting you, Anna. Absolutely not, because you actually leave the office. He thinks that food writers now are not leaving their desks enough and, and traveling the city as he does. Robert is legendary for his crawls and his insatiable curiosity about food in New York. Uh, He documents tacos, pupusas, banh mi, and more recently, the sandwich. I can't wait to hear this. Here is Matt talking to Robert. Robert Sietzema, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. So by your estimation, you've written 3.5 million words? 3.9 million (gasps) Yo, okay, so take me back. It's blogism. You know. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you are writing online now, but you, in 1993, you joined the Village Voice as a, as a food writer. As a food critic, that's right. As a right. critic. Yeah, yeah, the first, yeah, yeah. The, your first job was great. I wanted to, to kick off by going back to that time when you started at the Voice. Like, what were you writing about in 1993? Um, basically about the same thing that I was writing about, that I'm writing about now, but the world has kind of caught up with me. Um, I would – my chief pleasure – I came from a, a kind of a bland food background in the Midwest. And I came here and just discovered all of these little – we called them ethnic restaurants at the time. And I think that term is still marginally acceptable, meaning food that comes out of some ethnicity, food that is specific to a time and a place and a geographical location. So, um, you know, and so finding all these different kinds of restaurants at one point – I calculated there were 140 different ethnicities, you know, including all the European ones that at the time dominated the restaurant scene. But now, man, that's all changed. It's but. definitely changed. So at that time in 93, was there a predominant um, uh, interest of yours when you were writing those columns? Well, the, the, uh, the Mexicans had just arrived. Okay. 
And so there were all these little taqueria bodegas in what uh, most regarded as obscure places, uh, Bushwick, a name not everyone's lips at the time, uh, had a lot of interesting stuff. And uh, But that wasn't the only thing. I mean, there were interesting uh, Croatian restaurants and Serbian restaurants and Brazilian restaurants and restaurants from uh, obscure regions of China, though that was to come into force later. Uh, obscure, not to the people that live there, obviously, but no. to the people living in New York at the time. So what was your method like back then before – and this is before, obviously, cell phones, but before the before internet. Before the web. Before the yeah. internet. I mean, it was right at the dawn of the internet. Um, so how were you reporting? Because I feel like we rely so heavily on the internet when we're writing about food for fact-checking and for cross-referencing and for inspiration. But right. And these days, most food writers never leave their seats. They can just sit there with their laptops in front of them and they can look up every different kind of restaurant and they can figure out where things are without really – my entire method at the time and still is empirical. Uh, my favorite thing to do is to just pick a neighborhood at random and go there and just kind of like be really hungry and start canvassing the neighborhood for restaurants. And uh, sometimes I have an idea what I'm going to find. Sometimes I don't. But uh, And I love – you operate – so independently from the from the internet and from the social media echo chamber, but of course you're part of it working at Eater, which is super innovative. Oh God, yes. Yeah. So I, but I feel like you when you when you made that comment about how food writers don't leave their desks. How do you feel about that? I mean, do you have any emotion, or are you just kind of doing your own thing? Well, they're making it really easy for me. It's <laughs> uh, so true. Uh, you know, really, I I feared for decades that I would be getting off the train and I would spot a half a dozen other food writers kind of like beating the bush looking for restaurants. And I would have to like kind of engage them in fisticuffs to decide who got to go into this new uh, this new restaurant from Indonesia in Elmhurst or something. And then the fact of the matter is nobody else was really interested in doing that. Um and I'm not patting myself on the back. I regard myself as a as a strange sort of subspecies. Yeah, but I, I will pat you on the back and I'll be the one to jump in because I think it's a really salient point how actual reporting is part of the job. It's not like food writing. It's like food reporting. And that's what's really fun. Totally agree. I, mean, I can't tell you. <laughs> and you, you yourself have done a lot of this – you know, going to neighborhoods, you know, hungry, looking for places to eat. Us together. Fine. We've gone to Korean restaurants and Mexican restaurants in Queens and Brooklyn. I love hanging out with you. It's it's almost like um, I'm with a professor. I feel like you <laughs> always have great stories. Um, I want to hear a little bit about the sandwich quest that you're going on at Eater. You've announced this recently that you'll be eating a bunch of sandwiches in 2019. First off, why sandwiches in 2019? And what do you want to do with this project? Um, you know, the, one of the problems with food writing today is that it rides on a crest of superlatives. In order to attract clicks, everyone writes this kind of overblown prose about things. And I thought, what is the most plebeian, the most normal sort of thing. And that's the sandwich, the lowly sandwich. And looking into the sandwich further, I discovered that there were vast territories of unexplored sandwichness. And uh, there were places that were making sandwiches that were unsung and sandwiches from cultures that nobody knew had any sandwiches except the eaters of the sandwich themselves. So um, 
I decided to try to write in a kind of offhand sort of way. To me, it was like a writing challenge. Could I write about these sandwiches in a kind of level-headed way without, you know, because everyone expects you to say, oh, this is the best sandwich. And it's like all bullshit. Mm-hmm. It, it, it drives you crazy because yeah. here, without much empirical evidence, people that haven't even tried the dishes that they're writing about in, in many cases uh, are writing this like overblown prose and stuff. So I said, what could be norm- more, more normal and more even than just sandwiches. And uh, and I started discovering things about sandwiches that I'd never really realized before. Uh, I was watching a film noir movie on one of those stations that uh, projects them constantly. And, uh, and these two kind of like low-life guys go into this diner, and, uh, and they order a sandwich. And, and I'm watching it thinking, wow, sandwiches, that's one of my favorite things. And uh, even though they were out of style for a long time and now they're coming back in for reasons to be f- explained later. Oh, yeah. um, but uh, the waitress went over to the back of the diner and she got two slices of white bread, two thin slices of boiled ham, one slice of cheese, buttered the bread, and that was the sandwich. That was the entire sandwich. It was like, and I'm thinking, wow, all these people in this movie, they're so skinny. I didn't notice that. But <laughs> this was their idea of sandwich. It was not something piled high no. with all sorts of crap and just like things falling out mm-hmm. on each side. And, you know, like three kinds of meat and four mm-hmm. kinds of cheese mm-hmm. and, you know, and and sl- slather. Whenever you hear the word slather, be oh, very suspicious. That word is t- I, I mean, yeah. we use the modern parlance <laughs> of it's like extra. Like sandwiches are always in the extra realm. It's like, yeah, it has to be superlative. So are you on a quest then to find the banality of sam- the beautiful banality of sandwiches. Well, that's just part of it. Uh, yeah. To explore the demi monde of sandwiches mm-hmm. is to be in every corner of the world at once. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I discovered way you know the whole myth about Lord Sandwich inventing the sandwich is just complete crap. Oh yeah. Uh, the I mean, even in his own country, people were using slices of bread called trenchers as mm-hmm. plates in medieval era. So. The open face sandwich was invented before the two slice of bread sandwich, and we really have no idea what Lord Sandwich. Lord Sandwich, yeah, it's like a, it's a Indian Hindu god or something. Yeah, it seems Lord Sandwich fishy. It's like some fishy <laughs> Wikipedia stuff there. So we're gonna look, we're gonna follow you along. And what have you written about so far? Uh, I've written about uh, today appeared a column about this grilled cheese sandwich in a vegetarian Mumbai Indian restaurant in Floral Park, Queens. Uh, but I've done some other things. I started out with lowly liverwurst. Oh, man. Uh, w- one of my whole That's ideas. my dad's favorite sandwich, by the way. Just going to shout Lucky out my dad. it's not your great-great-grandfather's He, he has an old-school streak. <laughs> it, it, and it's really – the first thing I found out was that I went to deli after deli, and I would say liverwurst, and they would look at you like, are you crazy? Uh, and I couldn't even find pumpernickel to put the liverwurst on, but I did eventually come up with a liverwurst sandwich, and I put the mustard and the onion on it. But uh, one of the whole ideas is to re- explore the retro sandwich realm, and uh, and liverwurst was the first one. And uh, you know, and but the, one of the next things I'm writing about is the super torta. Uh-huh. Which is what happened to the uh, Mexican sandwich when it got here. It suddenly got supersized. Okay. So this was and, a uh, purely American uh, – Yeah, like yeah. like jerk chicken. There's many, many things that were one way in the old country and came here and were transformed. As a matter of fact, 
people who are really into identity politics sometimes get flustered at the idea that food is the great leveler. Food is the thing that has been passed back and forth across the world for millennia. And there's no such thing as an uncontaminated, pure cultural phenomenon It's why it's so fascinating to write about. Oh, yeah. It opens up so many uh, conversations. Definitely. Food. I mean, it's it's the one thing that everybody has been stealing from everybody else forever. I wanted to talk about Down the Hatch, which was uh, a zine that you put out. Was this before or after The Voice? I can't remember. This was before The Voice. And this was the thing that got me the the Voice gig. I was really, really lucky because I have no experience in journalism. My last writing experience was in college, and I was an awful writer. (laughs) But you Uh, were in publishing. You worked in design. That's right, uh, which is enough to convince anyone (laughs) to never write anything. I mean, I was an editor in a publishing company, so uh, (laughs) – and I did a lot of other things too. I was a – I was a rock musician. I was a uh, I was a real estate secretary. I was a so-called financial analyst in a real estate company, which is just all total crap. Which <laughs> uh, means that you use numbers to lie about things. Yeah. But uh, at any rate, uh, you know, it proves I have no moral compass whatsoever. But uh, but anyway, I, I started. My parents gave my young daughter, who was at the time maybe, you know, four three years old, one of the first kind of home computers. This is in the late 80s before anybody knew what would you do with a computer at home. I mean, now everyone knows what to do with them. But at the time, it was like, well, gee, this is basically an office machine. Am I going to start like writing memos at home and passing them out to other people in the family? Um, So I decided that I was going to use it to do this thing called a fanzine based on what I'd seen in the rock world, which was... Uh, publications celebrating a single band or class of bands written from the perspective of a fan. Pure tenant of punk rock. Yeah, like exactly. Like a fanzine, it's, a, it's copied at a copier center and yes, exactly. staples involved. And right. since I worked at publishing companies, I had free Xerox. Nobody knows what Xerox is now, <laughs> but photocopying. Yeah. Yeah. So I could photocopy at work in kind of the off hours my fanzine about food. And I just – I distributed it among fellow rock musicians because I figured that was like a good way to get it out. And that's the other people that I wanted to to get eating at these interesting yeah. places. Um, but eventually I realized that there was almost no coverage of these kind of restaurants that I was stumbling on uh, in the popular press. So I started – this is my big mistake. I sent it out to editors and food writers that I admired. Uh, And that eventually landed me the voice gig when the voice kind of presciently realized that this was kind of an area that might be of interest to its readers. Since even then, fancy restaurants were like mad expensive, you know, and nobody I knew – could blow complete polars, right? Oh yeah, there was yeah, no yeah. middle. Like yeah, you were today. either in a fancy French restaurant, which was all the fancy restaurants, or you were in like a hash house, a kind mm-hmm. of a predictable place where you went yeah. to nourish yourself and not necessarily to enjoy. And then it. you're in the third category you spoke of, which is like the the quote unquote ethnic restaurants, which were like far out in the community. Right, and that yeah. was, that coincided with this explosion of immigration yeah. in the happier days when immigrants were welcomed with open open arms yeah. rather than discouraged. Oh, man. Uh, because immigrants have always been the soul of this country. And so I was lucky enough at that time to find all these nationalities, you know, desperately trying to re- 
recreate the food of their home countries and letting me have a taste of it without prejudice or without, you know, I received people used to say, well, how can you go to all these restaurants? Don't people like kick you out or aren't they mad that you're there? And I'm going like, I have never had anyone be even to look at me sideways. Your money is green. And that that really does matter. But even more than that, (laughs) the people were glad to have someone from outside come in and enjoy the food with obvious relish. It's my Uh, same experience as well as doing the similar reporting. I I agree. It's never a bad situation. Everyone – if you ask the right questions or even if you're just present – you know, I feel or like and respectful, respectful and present. Yeah, the most yeah. important thing. I want to ask you about down the hatch, though. Like, who was on your subscription list? Like, who, who, who well, like you? Ruth Rachel and yeah. Eric Asimov, uh-huh. and uh, just everybody that I could think of. Calvin yeah. Trilla, and I sent mm-hmm. it to. I mean, it wasn't hard to find out where these people lived. Yeah, uh, you know, you just called up somebody that you knew that knew them or something, and that in the boho days of boho days of the East Village yeah. and the in the Lower East Side, you know, everybody knew everybody else. You so. still have all the copies? I have nearly all the copies <gasps> and I've even a few offers to publish the run of them because I swear my writing was like much better and more unaffected back then. It was like, uh, it was you know, just purely honest. It was just fanzine writing, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is a, oh. a pretty good kind of writing. You know, I mean, if we could only do it now. Rather How can than... I read this? Is there anywhere that has been digitized or anywhere? Uh, well, the, the reading room at the public library has a full run, but I'd be glad to send you a few copies. Oh. I probably have 40 or 50 copies Thanks. of everyone except one or two. Appreciate and, uh, that. I will go to the library. No, I, I, if it's in the library here in New York, I would love to do that. I'm going to spend an afternoon there. They used to sell at Kitchen Arts and Letters, but they kind of all sold out, and I kind of let go of it. And uh, at one point, I had hoped to continue writing for Down the Hatch, but I just got too much paying work after a while yeah. and quit my jobs and, and ended up the... being a professional food writer. So let's talk about reviewing restaurants, too, because you, you obviously, at The Voice, you weren't just writing about unknown restaurants. You wrote about other restaurants, too. And what was that like, reviewing restaurants? You still do review restaurants as well. And did you, did you have any good stories of locking horns with chefs or any any, any um, interesting back and forth? Well, to begin with, being an anonymous reviewer, which is something that I have stuck to all of these years. And even today, if you Google my name on the web, you will find a picture of Michael Musto, uh, to which I credit friends of mine at Google at the time for like doing some kind of patch that caused that picture to always pop up. I, lo- I, I joked about Instagram <laughs> yesterday and I got hit up by a few people who were like, what is this? It's like, it's like one of my favorite things on the internet, I must say, your your photo, oh, your, you being Michael Musto. The, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> uh, it's hilarious. But I've been really lucky and it hasn't been that difficult for a variety of reasons. One of the possible reasons is nobody gives a crap what I say about these restaurants. Yeah. Another is that, uh, you know, most critics crave being recognized. Uh, it gives them a kind of royal status. The dirty little and, secret uh, you just gave there. I believe you're so correct. Well, yeah, and they have little ways of being recognized. One of the ways is that they uh, that they behave in a certain way. They kind of twirl their wine glass and they sniff it and they ask probing questions about what's in a dish and they kind of – whereas um, – I, I, in general, went to both lowbrow and highbrow mm-hmm. restaurants, cheap restaurants, expensive mm-hmm. restaurants, but I would always bring an unexpected crew with me. Uh, like sometimes I bring a class of high school students or I bring, you know, I bring a baby or something. Yeah. You know, I, I tried to not look like a critic. Uh, and I don't think I'm several 
critics have been cursed by being very obvious looking. Uh, but I'm kind of like a normal, <laughs> short uh, Fiji Islander. Oh, my so, God. No, you, no, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I was like, you're not a short <laughs> man. You're trying to throw people off. <laughs> but did you ever, with reviews, do you have any reviews that pop out that were like particularly contentious with... Um, I, I, have, I have received... Uh, <clears throat> I've received hate mail. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of them was from John Stage, who yeah, owns uh, dinosaur. the Dinosaur Barbecue Chain, which is extremely successful. He doesn't need my approbation. He's a tough-looking dude, too. Well, he can come and beat me up if he wants. Uh, <laughs> I love it. But, you know, I, I, I think I didn't quite understand what he was doing, which is recreating the barbecue from a biker bar in Syracuse, New York. Which wouldn't one wouldn't expect to be particularly good, and I took umbrage at certain Shots. of his habits, like uh, putting uh, putting horseradish on beef brisket, smoked brisket, for example. You know, as a Texan, sometime Texan, I'm a purist for that. I don't bother with any kind of barbecue sauce. So, you know, I I criticize the things that I didn't like about it. But every critic has idiosyncratic yeah. ideas. And he just flew off the handle. Why he cared what I thought, I don't know. But he wrote me a hate mail. Another guy that I've received, joyfully received hate mail from is Ted Allen, <laughs> who uh, hates my guts. And the reason is that I once snuck into an Iron Chef America taping, uh, and uh, and I wrote a cover story for The Voice about how all of it was just, it was fake. Everything they did, they the judges, I found, didn't even judge the dishes that had been cooked during the competition. The dishes were recreated hours later for the judging by people that weren't even the competing chefs. And in other words, and people like, in, in, you know, and they hated me for, for pointing these flaws out. But to me, as a kind of a halfwit, it, it just, it seems so contrary to what the whole idea of the contest It's was. a legendary piece. Listener, you should definitely Google it. You can find it, I'm sure, the voices uh, in the archive or on Google Books because it is an epic piece. I remember that. It did cause quite a stir because at the time, I think food media was was kind of um, eating out of the hands of t- food television. And I feel like it was it was this relationship that was weird and um, imbalanced. And I think you kind of blew it all up with that piece. So thank you. It was cool. Yeah, one. no, I just it was so much fun to do and uh, to be to try to be subversive a little bit. Um, I had Pete Wells in here a few weeks ago and I asked him a, a question that I want to ask you um, because I think it's really important because I think we're really at an interesting time in New York. So what should the next New York City mayor do to help these small restaurant owners who are really, really struggling to survive. Um, we've seen the headlines, there's closures every single day. It's clearly a real estate issue. Somebody needs to step in. Do you have a solution? Well, to begin with, I don't believe that Mayor de Blasio cares. He I is, said next uh, mayor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he is in the pocket of the real estate interests as all of the previous mayors have been. And even even when he kind of slipped up and said he wanted to sell a third of the NYSHA housing to real estate developers, it was like, are you out of your mind? Why would you even think of something like that? But let me go back to when I first arrived in New York in 1977, when uh, – I knew of only one McDonald's in the entire city, and that was the one 
right on uh, First Avenue around 6th Street. Yep. And it was an oddity. Uh, not too long after that, Larry Rivers made me angry by selling out his loft on 14th Street and 1st Avenue to a McDonald's location, a former dry cleaner. And you can imagine how that improved the taste of the Big Macs, the dry cleaning fluid kind of perfuming the air. Um, so at any rate, uh, there were no franchise restaurants. And, uh, you know, the real estate obsession with getting the maximum penny, no matter what the consequences are, uh, by renting to these chains. Now chains are ubiquitous and their handmaidens are the uh, fast casual local chains and national chains, which pretend to kind of put lipstick on a pig <laughs> by turning fast food into this thing that you're supposed to tip massive amounts for. And, you know, and that whole debate, which is so complicated. Making it aspirational to eat this, like, bullshit food. Yeah, yeah exactly. That is the same as all the other crap food. It's and, the same uh, as the airport shit you're going to eat. Meanwhile, Georgia. all of these, you know, the reason that New York is New York is because of the life on the streets and the Ma and Pa restaurants and the vast range of choices uh, and, and the idea that they would sell this stuff down this, you know, look at something like this ridiculous new development over in Hell's Kitchen mm -hmm. where they have like high rises and they have this kind of like worked out plan of all the restaurants and all the food media is falling into line to like drool over it. Say Ryan Sutton, Ed Eater, your colleague is not. I like him. I like him too. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to jump in and say that yeah, yeah. not all food media is eating out of the hand. I'm seeing a lot of this. Yes, I'm though. speaking I, in general. Yeah, but, no, no, you totally. Know, it's, uh, you know, what's that called? Hudson uh, Yards. Hudson Yards. Hudson Yards, yes. man. Big, uh, um, how do we then help these mom pas that I so agree we need them for New York to, to maintain its soul? Well, I would say that there has to be a kind of restaurant ombudsman who will uh, help these people negotiate their leases. There has to be some kind of safety net. You know, because you read one of the stock and trades of all of these uh, media is to bellyache about wonderful restaurants from the past that are going out of business, that have been around 30, 40, 50 years. We're no longer even surprised. We're yeah. deadened to it, just like mass shootings in schools. Uh, you know, we're having mass shootings of restaurants where restaurants are just dying left and right. And speaking of hyperbole, we have, you know, the jump in. I cannot believe blank restaurant closed. And you ask yourself, when was the last time you went there? Right, was right, like four right. years ago. When is the last time you wrote about it, writer? That was I've never written about them except for this this surprise. So I think it's all everyone's problem. Yes, actually. we we as restaurant journalists are s certainly largely at fault. Our, our emphasis on just new, new places, yeah. always the newest new place. And people who describe themselves as foodies, I mean, they pride themselves in being the first to get to a place. And, and I've fed into that myself. I mean, I'm equally as guilty where, you know, I mean, people want to read about the new restaurants and they really mm. don't care about the old restaurants. Yet there's many restaurants. I was just at a, a place the other night, this Italian restaurant called Jeans. In the East in the West Village, and it's uh, it's actually in Greenwich Village, and um, it has that kind of uh, red and dead Italian sauce, and it was filled with people that just loved it. I mean, the median age may have been sixty or seventy or something, but uh, you know, it was a place. That, and I looked through 
you know, I looked through the the web presence of the restaurant, and no one had written about it in decades. Uh, and yet, a perfectly good place that represented part of New York's history. So, Jeans uh, faces a, a rent increase um, in 2020. We'll say. Uh huh. Um, so you're saying there's an ombudsman who could potentially help them and maybe create a new business model. Right. Or perhaps even some sort of rent stabilization. OK. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. And, and Wells, uh, Pete, was not was not for that or, or wasn't clear. And, and, you know, Pete, it was – Well, good. everyone pays lip service to the idea that everyone should have complete freedom to do – you know, that's the the most – obviously defined freedom of being an American is the freedom to to screw everybody else with your real estate, yeah. to sell a block of buildings that define the character of a neighborhood. So a new high-rise condo can be built under de Blasio. This is only accelerated. You know, and in many cases, the uh, the tax abatements that are given to these developers make it possible to view these Apartments as investments for foreign people. I mean, as long as the as the real estate mogul makes his nut, <laughs> as they say, they don't care what else it happens. So it's a spreadsheet. even the high rises over by where I live in the West Village in a rent stabilized apartment, the high rises over by the river. Uh, many of them, you can see that they remain empty, that there's they've all been bought, but nobody lives there. A city that allows apartments to be built that no one is going to live in, displacing people that need a place to live is just insane. I mean, and if I were mayor, I would just seize all those damn empty apartments. If nobody's living in a man, I'd give them up for free. Yeah, I'd give them up and for free. And real estate developers make so much money. Screw them. Yeah. And I and what, speaking of taxes, what about the idea of a vacancy tax? So a tax. Oh, for, God, yes. That's good. I feel like that is really practical. Like a, a, a restaurant, a former restaurant space sits empty for 12 months. After 12 months. There's places on the West Village yeah. that have been empty for 10 years. And so like, how do we curb that through taxation and through regulation? Yeah, I definitely agree with that, that yeah. there has to be somebody okay. in the government who is going to make sure these places are rented <laughs> and rented at reasonable prices. I mean, I don't care. Call it call it socialism. Call it whatever you want. But the city, the safety of its very pedestrians yeah. relies on having storefronts filled with businesses rather than empty. And just half of the restaurant spaces in the West Village are are empty. Same with Smith Street in Brooklyn, oh, yeah. where I live. Yeah, it's and, bizarre. And same with Atlantic Avenue. You could go on and on in, in the neighborhoods of New York. What and, happened to the idea of the of the city government being like the protector of the people rather than yeah. its exploiter, rather than enabling real estate interests? Why not protect us from them? I wish we could solve this this issue now, but let's 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 <laughs> let's vow to write. So, a, sorry, we're off on a. No, tangent. I love it. Uh, let's let's vow to write about it more. I think that's as journalists we can help a little bit by maybe asking um, our, our like maybe our next public advocate who we're voting for today maybe that individual will but which of the 17 candidates oh my gosh I, I have mine history <laughs> will prove Jumani Williams wins if I'm the right guy on the right side of history or the wrong side of history um, but like let's t- let's get back into the, the the restaurants of today in New York and I wanted to ask you what is the biggest story that we're all missing right now about New York City restaurants wow. um the biggest story that we're all missing has to do with immigrants being discouraged uh, from coming to the city by the Trump administration. The actual leaking out of uh, of immigrant groups from the city 
going back to their home countries in some cases, in some cases going to other cities where they can afford to live. I mean, you know, I mean, why is it that New York has to be unaffordable Mm -hmm. and that Manhattan has to be a concentration of rich people that own things but don't even live here? Uh, so the biggest story to me is is the Trump administration discouraging immigration and many people believing that immigrants are not a good thing, whereas they're a wonderful thing. So, you know, I, I myself have seen the number of restaurants in many ethnic categories decrease or remain the same. I mean, mm-hmm. in waves of immigrants, the only people that seem to be getting over on this whole system are Chinese. We have one of the most exciting demimons of Chinese cuisine that the city has ever seen to the point where I believe we are surpassing Los Angeles. You are, and Serena Dye, the editor of, of Eater New York, and yourself and many of your colleagues at Eater wrote a really great package about the Chinese in New and York. And it was easy to do because <laughs> the material is there. Yeah. I mean, we have regional restaurants from you know, 20 or so regions of China. We have, you know, these upscale Chinese restaurants and, and restaurants with innovative chefs and yeah. and attractive restaurants on all levels of uh, of the economic ladder. And you wrote a piece about the different region, the regionality um, of Chinese restaurants in New York. And, and we read about Sichuan all the time. We read about Yunnan a little bit more. But ta- take us to a region of China that maybe we don't know about. Oh, my God. In New York. Oh, I'm so thank you for this question. Yeah. Yes, Dongbei, yeah. which is the area that used to be called Manchuria, up near nestled next to North Korea, uh, where you go into a Dongbei restaurant and the first thing they put down on your table is a jar of kimchi, um, where there's many influences from Europe since it was an early industrial area and a lot of the industrialists that came here were, for example, German. So sauerkraut is something that appears with many dishes, uh, not to mention many indigenous Chinese things, but mm-hmm. you know, a general emphasis on wheaten products rather than rice. You can go through a dozen Dongbei uh, meals and never, uh, never eat a grain of rice. Uh, they have, like at this place called Fu Run, they have all of these influences that arrive from the Middle East via the Silk Road, which uh, which supposedly stopped in Henan, which is pronounced Henan. <laughs> yeah. I, there's so many wonderful things about learning about Chinese geography the first time. For example, there's a place called Shanxi with one A and Shanxi with two A's, and they're right next to each other, driving even people in Beijing crazy. Yeah. But so you find in Dongbei, you find uh, this dish called at Fu Run, you find this dish called Muslim Lamb Chop. And it turns out to be this magnificent giant rack of mutton chops stuck together and painted red. Oh, beautiful. And covered with cumin seeds. Yeah. And it's just, this tastes so good, you can't believe it. And other dishes involve boiled beef with sauerkraut in an almost medieval (laughs) presentation of a dish that could be European. Uh, You know, we already know that the Germans were there in Qingdao, Qingdao. Where they have set up a brewery where the beer is made, and there's a little German village that attracts uh, unbelieving tourists. Yeah, it's it's an amazing story, and I'm I'm so happy you and your colleagues covered it in Eater. Well, the obvious other side of it is how much Chinese American food has influenced American food. I mean, when I was a kid, Mom had a whole uh, a whole tray of these. 
Chongqing cans and she would like open them up with like water chestnuts and water chestnuts and and these uh fried noodles and make this like wonderful peking duck oh yeah oh my god i mean you got americans eating duck oh my god i know besides long islanders yeah Yeah, long islanders have known it for a while that's a good shout out let's talk about jonathan gold a close friend of yours i wanted to get your memory of him um, I know that's like a tough thing to ask you. Like, Not at to all. Summarize. I mean, I mean, just to summarize because there's a lot to say. But just uh, leave uh, leave us with a memory of Jonathan and and maybe a, 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 maybe a meal you had in New York that you really remember. Well, like uh, like uh, the scholar in uh, in Chaucer, gladly would he learn and gladly teach. He was someone that just was like this uh, fount of information. Uh, about food and to get him – the first thing you do is to try to get him to start talking on a subject. And uh, he taught me so much about food and even predicted things that would appear here. He was a kind of a magician of food scholarship. Like he said, someday, Robert, you're going to be walking down the streets of Sunset Park and you're going to see a pombazo. And I said, what the hell is a pombazo? And he told me it was a sandwich where they dipped – the halves of the loaf in chili sauce, guajillo chili sauce, and then they loaded it up with potatoes. And how can you miss with a sandwich that has potatoes in it? Potatoes and chorizo. And this is a specific sandwich that may have originated in Guadalajara. It may have originated in Veracruz. But he knew that eventually the sandwich would make it to New York. At the time, I was very jealous of both the Mexican food and the Chinese food that they had in Los Angeles. Now, not so much. Uh, we have become front runners in both of those areas, or at least co-equal with, uh, with Los Angeles, which is still a wonderful food city, but the debate continues. But Jonathan was just, he was, uh, he was great to be around. Mm-hmm. He was a wealth of, uh, of scholarly reference. He, uh, he spoke very well and was charming. In in a way that was not patronizing, never. It was and, like yeah. And what about just music too? Like you, you're in bands. He wrote about music. He was a musician himself. Did you guys ever? Did you guys ever play together? Uh, we never played together, but we did attend uh, a few gigs together. Uh, you know, for both of us, the music was more in the past. Yeah. So we had a lot of we you know exchanged gig stories, and and he. he I hope someone is writing a biography about Jonathan Gold, and I hope they come to me for anecdotes because yeah. uh, he was an assistant to the uh, to the conceptual artist Chris Burden, mm-hmm. and quit his job when uh, Chris Burden asked him to be shot in the arm because one of Chris Burden's most famous projects was being shot. Uh, and I feel he, that was in the doc. I think that's a great story. I, I, yeah. yeah, that is a, it, it's it's a good is. I don't story. remember what stories I've told or not. No, but, no, it's uh, great. And 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 let's talk also about Calvin Trillin because I, did you see his play? Did you see about you know, Alice? I I didn't see it, but I kind of lived through it. Of so, course, you did. Uh, I saw, I saw it in Brooklyn recently. It's, it's a really nice play about him, his relationship with his wife Alice. Right. Um. Are, are you guys hanging out? What's we we hang out? He's uh, he's been a little sicker lately. Uh. I love to hang out with him. Uh, most often, we'll have a party at his house. Yeah. He invites little groups of people, mainly food writers. Uh, and I've met people like Hannah Goldfield, and you know, and all sorts of people there uh, at his house. Um, he and I go out. We go out for Finesca for Lent every year oh, to yeah. an Ecuadorian restaurant. Uh, 
you know, we he, he's not he doesn't drive anymore. Uh, in the days when he drove, I mean, I feel like he's kind of the godfather of food writing. He invented really vernacular is. food writing, and uh, and it's him I can thank for a lot of my success as a food writer, just because he wrote a piece about me in the New Yorker, and that's kind of like like receiving a kiss on the forehead from a you know a mafia don. You always have so. that, yeah. I want to find out. Uh, lastly, we have an illustration with. Uh, with all of our our interviews, and of course, because you're anonymous, we cannot show your face. Uh-huh. Asked this to Pete Wells, and he, he had uh, an anteater as his. You can check it out in the archive. Robert, who should represent you in graphic form on the Taste Podcast? Uh, I would say a ferret. Or one of those, uh, what are those things that are that millennials made all the memes about the f- funny little animals that stand up? Lemming? No. No. You're looking at the wrong guy. Well, I don't know. What that <laughs> no, is. I think a ferret will be fine. We'll do. We'll do a yeah, ferret. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So tell me, why the ferret? Uh, ferrets are secretive. They have long necks. They uh, they kind of like. They're illegal too, right? During the so. during the Giuliani administration, yeah. uh, when I was arrested for smoking marijuana. <laughs> uh, yes, a ferret is good. They sneak around. Robert Sizema, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast, and thanks for having me. That was big fun. Here's Deb Perlman answering a reader question. Deb, we have a question from a reader. What is the most delicious thing you've ever eaten in New York City for less than $3? Hmm. I mean, is there even a question? It's a Joe slice. I mean, there's always like dumplings in Chinatown, but I also feel like a Joe slice is a pretty solid choice. Also, my unpopular opinion with Joe slices, I actually like them reheated better than right out of the oven. I feel like the crust gets crispier and the cheese is more set after it's cooled and then been rewarmed. Reheated so. at home or reheated no, in like their big oven? When they heat they it up like... for you. like So rather than they're like, oh, we have a fresh pie coming. I usually find it a little too like wet for like mm-hmm. standing and eating. But once, you know, usually they've, they've barely been out usually for more than 30 minutes tops because they have, like, huge turnover. But I like the ones that they rewarm better. Dollar slices are kind of their own their own breed of pizza in New York. They are. I mean, I actually was like, can I can I work in a mention of, like, the best blintzes in New York? But it turns out that a single one is $5, and that's inflation for you. So, but Where's I'm, the best blintz, though? I am a great fan of the B&H Dairy um, blintz. They deep fry it. It's like they're a Russian incredible. egg roll. It's so good. They're it, crispy on the outside so and creamy good. on the inside. Yeah, they're really – like it's going to be hard to eat any other blends after that. So think really hard before you go down there for one. But apparently I think it's up to five bucks now. So sorry, guys. Can't have it. Thanks, Deb. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.